0: Guys, have you guys heard this phrase in Proverbs? Says, says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. There's a lot to that. And this is just a precursor here, right? There's a lot to this statement. Faithful are the wounds of a friend assumes that a friend did or said something to you that hurt, that was painful, right? That's the wound part. And it's being clear that you were wounded by a friend, but that the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And that picture assumes that there is an enemy who is saying things that you want to hear and doing things to you that you want done to you. And it feels pleasant, even to the analogy of a kiss, but it's deceitful. And for some reason, in the church, what we have is this deep-rooted philosophy and concept that tells us that when we are wounded, it cannot be a friend. A friend wouldn't do that to me. A friend wouldn't say that to me. A friend would know me better than that. It's just there. And there's lots of flex wiggle room here, right? Like, there's, there's a sliding scale. Sometimes a friend says something to you that hurts, and it wasn't. Very faithful, right? But it doesn't matter because what we do is, as a blanket statement, we live under this concept that a friend would never hurt us, would never say something that in the moment might seem hurtful or painful. And we just dismiss it. And I think we miss a large part of God trying to speak to us by having that posture. And instead, what we do is we so quickly run to offense. And then we rally up all the enemies that will kiss us to comfort us and let us know how wrong that friend was for hurting us, right? Now, if we were sitting down, we'd go a lot deeper into this conversation, but I just want to put that out there as the, the general theme here, guys, that the majority of the offense that we experience, especially in this body, the Wyndham Crossing Church, comes from this idea that we are not going to that first, this biblical philosophy of wounds from a friend are faithful. And instead, we dismiss it as offensive, as wrong, as judgmental. And that starts because we're starting from a place of mistrust and distrust, which most oftentimes comes from a place of being wounded. And we need to decide on, on what we're going to do. Are we going to operate according to 1 Corinthians 13 and give those who are one in the Lord with us together that type of grace where it says that love believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things, it suffers long and is kind? To the point where our first thought is, when something gets said and it's hurtful, is there any truth in this? Is this a faithful wound? Being inflicted on me. And that's going to take a lot because you have to overcome your initial human and well-trained response of wound defense. And you immediately lose the benefit that God's trying to bring to you. I mean, you know that in Isaiah, God prophesied and said this about, it pleased the father to crush his son. Because it was a faithful wound that was going to produce salvation for you. And me. This faithful wound of a friend concept, like when I started thinking about it, I was like, do you know when someone freezes to death? And this idea was on my mind because we just had all the interns over to watch um, one of the classic uh, stories of our faith called Iron Will. It uh, was made by Disney in the 1990s before Disney lost its mind. Um... And the movie is this epic story. Uh, Like all Disney movies in the 90s and even the early 2000s, some devastatingly tragic event happens to either a mother or father at the beginning. And that is the motivation for the rest of the movie. And at the end, you know, Simba takes Pride Rock and everything's good. But in Iron Will, it's it's a dog race through the Adirondack. And people freeze to death all the time. And in two of the scenes it shows... One person on the verge of freezing to death, and another person on the verge of freezing to death. And I remember in, in school them describing the process of freezing to death. When you freeze to death, your body slows down drastically. Like, your heartbeat slows Everything slows down to preserve the energy that you're losing through the cold. right? And I was well acquainted with this process again, thanks to Mark Moran, where I made an impulse purchase of an ice pod... And then realized it's cold. (laughs) It's very cold. And it hurts. Um, But it said that you lose calories. So I was like, I'll do it. Um, And in this process, I was reminded, like, man, it's true. Everything, like, when you're freezing to death, your body preserves itself. And right before you die, you will go to sleep. Everything slows down to the point where you go to sleep. Can you imagine that? You're dying, and you go to sleep. You're like, you know what I want to do? I want to go to sleep. And it's this preservation process that happens where your body slows down so much that you're about to fall asleep, and they say the last thing you want to do when you're freezing to death is fall asleep, right? Like, that's it. You fall asleep, you're as good as dead, because now your body will just freeze to death. And so what you do with someone who's freezing is you keep them awake at all costs, And this includes inflicting pain to stir up the body's response again. And right before you die, your body goes into this sense of calmness and false euphoria where everything seems really nice and calm. It's your body about to enter into shock. The pain goes away. There's this, this settled calm. You fall asleep and then you die. And when I was reading through this passage on the faithful, the wounds of a friend, this is what I was thinking, right? Like God continually sends friends to wound us for the purpose of keeping us from dying. And there has been many times I've seen people refuse this, these wounds and instead get offended or refuse the wounds and walk away. And in my own life, I have seen God be faithful many, many times through this consistent inflicting of wounds, And I've many times worshiped the Lord for being a faithful friend in my life, right? And sending people to consistently not give up and send these wounds that kept me from settling down into this false sense of euphoria that was rooted in deception, where if I had, the enemy would have taken much more control and destroyed my life multiple times you understand? But when you're there, you can see how on the verge you are. When you are able to to stop any wounding from coming, you will enter into a place of false peace. Your life will seem calm. All the disruptions will be gone, and you will be left alone to settle and enjoy this temporary pleasure. This temporary absence of suffering and pain. And wounding, But what you don't know is it's the precursor to your eternal death. It is the precursor to your separation from God, which is about to be made complete. Because you have inoculated yourself to any of the wounds that were trying to wake you up. To bring you back to the truth and the freedom of the gospel that requires suffering. And it requires pain. And it requires hardship. At one point, Paul says to the church... All those who desire to live a life of godliness must suffer persecution. That's clear. I had some other things going on in my mind too, where God was just like, boom, 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 these hard truths that I was like, thank God for hard truths, such as do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That includes giving people the benefit of the doubt, the way you would want them to give you the benefit of the doubt. That includes extending grace and believing the best About someone else. The same way you would want that done to you. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then this one. Which is an exact quote from scripture guys. As you do unto the least of one of these. You do unto me. Jesus said that. Jesus was giving a very clear teaching to his closest followers. About treating even the least of those among us. And I'm thinking humanity, not just your family or the church or your friends. He says, when you bring a cup of water to someone who's thirsty, you're doing that to Jesus. Jesus is putting himself, like he did through the incarnation, in the place of every suffering person. And he's giving us this this creed, this credential, this, this command, saying, see that person? See that? Annoying, old, smelly person. As you do unto this person, you're doing it to me. And what we do is we reject Jesus for so many reasons, most of the time for comfort's sake. It's bad enough if we do it for self-preservation's sake. Oh, I don't know, that's risky, that's dangerous, whatever it is. Whatever our minds do, we all do it. That's bad enough, but when we do it for the self-preservation of comfort, that's inexcusable. According to Scripture. All of these are here, and they're subtle, subtle influences of the philosophies and and belief sets of this world, of this age. And God gave us the antidote to this, right? He gave us the clear, clear weapon to counter this so that we could truly walk as people of God, which is most of our goals. And the book of Ephesians is a masterwork of Paul to communicate this, right, right? Like, Paul, Paul writes this book of Ephesians, it's just six small chapters, it's a small letter, to the church in Ephesus, and his goal is to communi- communicate two things. What the ultimate gospel message is, and what it looks like lived out by his followers. And the book is split almost in half. The first three chapters are, are like a masterful laying out of the global universal gospel proclamation and message and what God has done. And then the second half is, this is what the gospel looks like on flesh, by my people, living it out. And it's something that every believer should really, really know well and practice with all of their heart. That was the emphasis of Paul. Matter of fact, most of Paul's letters were written to a specific church, and so they're written with a real personal edge. He's mentioning specific people, he's talking about specific situations, But not Ephesus. The letter to Ephesus, which is one of his largest, most established churches, he wrote with the intent of it being circulated. Because this was his, his, one of his... It was when he brought all the things he's been learning and growing in, and preaching and teaching together into a, a, a really mature presentation. And the theme of it is, the gospel as intended... And then the gospel made flesh as intended. So, we'll see. I was going to preach next week on this, but I ended up doing it this week, so I didn't have time to come up with the message. Normally I do, but I didn't have time this time. But if I was going to message it, I'd probably title it something like the gospel and its Mission." What I want to make clear for the mission, though, when I say mission, is this. I looked up the definitions for mission just to see what everyone thinks of as mission. Here's some of the big definitions. An important assignment carried out for political, religious, or commercial purposes, typically involving travel. An organization or institution involved in a long-term assignment in a foreign country. The vocation or calling of a religious organization, especially a Christian one, to go out into the world and spread its faith. A strongly felt aim, ambition, or calling. An important goal or purpose that is accompanied by strong conviction. A calling or vocation. Now, when you look at these definitions, and these are straight from the Oxford Definition, Dictionary, these define the word mission, and even built into the definition is the idea of the religious intent behind it. And the big picture theme of going out into the world, mostly involving travel, like, yes, these are involved, but not the way the church understands it today. Today we understand mission and travel as, to be part of the mission, you must be a missionary, you must go, you must travel to a foreign land or a far off place in order to do the mission. And that is just the furthest thing from Scripture. The furthest thing from Scripture. Do you understand? Wherever you are, do mission. If God happens to pick you out and say, go to a far place, do mission. Obey God. Whatever He says. But here's where the mission gets distracted or distorted in our culture in the last 100 years or so, is that we think that If we looked at Scripture, we'd see the people God sends on mission are the ones who have been broken, who have been wounded, who have been healed, who have been raised up, who have demonstrated maturity and experience in the ministry of the mission, in the work of the gospel, in their life. They've demonstrated the fruit. And then God says, set these ones apart from you for the work I've called them to. But we have it backwards in our modern day. We take the youngest, least experienced Because they have the zeal of youth and the the heart of God, they're touched by God, they're they're in the full, youthful, zealous, like, powerhouse of expression of their, their newly found relationship with God, and we say, this is awesome, go on mission. As a parent, that's crazy, right? Like, that's not what, you don't take someone because they're zealous and passionate And grab them and say, go do mission. Those are the people you invest in to raise up, to train up. One of the big parts of of Paul's message to Timothy in 2 Timothy was like, find faithful men whom you can pass this gospel truth onto so it can be preserved. Right? And then Paul would go places, start a church, and that church was to be on mission to expand the gospel in its territory until the gospel was known everywhere, until the whole earth is filled with the gospel, right? And so the majority of the mission of Christians in the church is to burn brightly where God has you and expand the gospel and the mission. And occasionally, God will find those among you and set some of you apart for specific works that may cause you to go places and do things. But because this is a multi generational thing, we have work to do as the church. We need to redefine the word mission as the scriptures define it so that we don't keep thinking the opposite. Because you know what the opposite leads to? It leads to this young people have the zealous, passionate pursuit of God and they should do mission. And as you get older, you're useless, you're retireable. There's not much else you can do. Contribute some, plan your retirement, go live your life of pleasure so that you slowly die in this place of happiness and joy that you've earned somehow through living long. And the church is so backwards about this that we, listen, it's it's a devious, deceptive, demonic philosophy that has invaded the church from toe to neck, and I won't say head because Christ is the head. But it is from toe to neck, guys. It is permeated through there. And we need, we need the antidote bad. Like, we need doses of this to be, to be injected. But you know what? The injection is going to create a wound. And you need to decide if that wound is coming from a friend or an enemy. Because that will decide how you receive everything that's ever said from the pulpit or from your living room. It doesn't matter. Whether you decide if it's coming from a friend or an enemy. Do you understand that? This injection is necessary, and this is what the book of Ephesians does. It gives this injection. But the definition of mission is the critical pre-understanding of this, because he, throughout the entire book, talks about mission. And if you got it from this wrong understanding, you're going to read Ephesians thinking he's talking about being part of You know, all the mission-sending organizations we have out there that are doing God's work, they're awesome, but that's not what Paul was intending in Ephesians when he's saying this. What Paul is saying in the mission throughout Ephesians is bigger than that. Way bigger than that. So when you look at a definition like an important assignment carried out for political, religious, or commercial purposes, typically involving travel, it can. It can involve travel. Travel. It involves travel for me all day, every day. I'm traveling constantly on mission. I get to write off all my mileage every year for tax return purposes because of all the travel I do for mission. A lot of you guys can do that as well. If you want to know more about that, talk to me after. An organization or institution involved in a long-term assignment in a foreign country. I love this one, guys. I love this one because from a biblical perspective, we are foreigners. Do you understand? This is not our home. This is not our native land. This is not where we are from. We are sojourners. We are on a mission in a foreign country, in a foreign land. And we are supposed to stand out like a foreigner would stand out. And we are involved in a long-term assignment in this foreign country. It's the vocation or calling of a religious organization, what we refer to as the church, the body of Christ, the ecclesia, especially a Christian one, to go out into the world and spread its faith. That's the mission. A strongly felt aim, ambition, or calling. And this is where a lot of us need to seek the Lord for growth. So that we have a strongly felt ambition called the mission. A strongly felt ambition. Like we're ambitious about it. It's something we want to see happen at all costs. An important goal or purpose that is accompanied by strong conviction, a calling, or vocation. Here's the scripture from the Bible that tells us the definition of mission. Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, says this: You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace of That is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is Paul's reminder to Timothy, the good soldier that he sent out to carry on the work that Paul was doing on how to carry out the mission. And he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And this is a point, an important analogy. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. What does he mean by that? No one, no soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. Well, from this analogy, what Paul's saying, he's clearly communicating to Timothy that he thinks Timothy is a soldier. In what army? Does he think he went and joined the the Ephesus army? He's part of one of the Roman cohorts there? No, he's clearly referring to the, the mission of Christ, and he's using the analogy of an army. And he's saying, Timothy... Be a good soldier, endure as a good soldier, and here's my point no soldier gets entangled with civilian affairs. What would civilian affairs be in this context? The world, the things that won't last, the temporary things, the things that aren't eternal, the things we strive and invest and work towards that will not last. We will not take them with us, they are temporary. They are more temporary than a whim, than, a, than a, a, a wisp of smoke. They are here today and they are gone tomorrow. And he's saying, no good soldier gets entangled in that crap. No good soldier pours their life out for these temporary endless things. No good soldier worries or plans or stresses for things that are not going to last. Do you understand I am right now with all the sincerity of my heart, just reading Scripture. And this is something I preach to myself. And this is something, there's, like over the years I've gotten lots of conversations and even critiques, okay? Because I'm seen as leadership. But guys, I'm leadership from the seats. Do you understand? I am I am in the same spot as you. I am following the same leadership. I am submitting to the same leadership. I am obeying and honoring the same leadership. I am up here speaking as someone who has to live this message myself every single day. I have to be married and raise my family in this context every single day. I wrestle and struggle with the exact same tensions and concerns and frustrations that you do as a follower of leadership. Probably more so because I'm involved in the tense discussions and debates and the meetings, where a lot of this stuff gets wrestled out and hashed out, and where the leading of God kind of gets refined. Do you understand that? I want to say this not because I want you to know, "Oh wow, look how good Steve is. No, no, no. I want you to understand that you can't easily dismiss me as just a leader who gets some sort of benefit from being up here that you don't. Do you understand? I don't get paid a penny for any of the ministry work that happens here. And instead, just like you, I give thousands and thousands of dollars to the ministry in order to help this thing move and go. I want to see it succeed. I give thousands and thousands of dollars worth of my skill and my trade and my time, just like you guys. But I am bound by Scripture to not only obey this, which I think I do a decent job of, thank God, And to now, once my obedience has been found complete, to now challenge you, fellow brothers and sisters, to do the same because the success of the mission depends on it. It depends on on all of you joining together and giving your life for the mission. It's so critical. Do you understand? I know that the the hot topic has been the 24-7 prayer initiative. I've communicated to you guys a million times about this in personal conversation and others, the, the life groups and the, the debriefs and everything. It's a hot topic and it's pushing buttons and it's struggling, it's challenging people. But it has to be allowed to be a challenge presented in the framework of Scripture and God. Do you understand? That has to be allowed. You have to decide if these are wounds that are coming from friends or enemies. And I can tell you, as much as is on me and as well as I know the leadership, they are coming at this towards you as friends. As people who, who are laying their lives down to raise a body up to do what they sincerely, heartfelt believe God is calling us as a church to do. And they're carrying more weight than most of us in order to do so. you understand? That's the demonstration. Scripture says, watch a person's life first before you decide to follow them. And we're saying, watch away, guys. Watch away and see. And this is the gospel message. This is the mission that Paul is saying. Do not allow yourselves to be entangled with civilian affairs. If we stop and just think about the things that keep us from, from participating more fully in our hearts first, and then in actions as the result. If we look at the things that, that take priority or come up and override this, and you just before God, not from any judgment from any other human, just you sat before God and you allowed the Holy Spirit to really assess and to inflict whatever wounds he needs to to show truth, you will probably find, just like all of us do, that there are things... That are taking priority or keeping you from being a more active, willing, heartfelt participant in the mission that are not gonna last. That are not gonna be eternal. They just won't. And when we stand before God and we allow our, the things we've invested in and the works we've produced to be tested before Him by fire, those things are gonna be burnt up right before our face, before the Lord. And this isn't a salvation issue. The Bible says very clearly, you will still go to heaven, but it will be as if you were saved by the flames of your dead works that got burnt up in that moment. And that's sad, because we have all of heaven, to, all of eternity to celebrate our, our successes, but only a few short hours before the dawn in which to earn them, in which to win these things. And so the theme of Ephesians carries on this. He goes on to say this, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. That being Jesus in this context. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. What are these rules? Well, the language here is the Scripture. The rules here. We're competing as people according to the, the race guidelines Jesus has given us. and said, compete so that we receive, we can run as if those who want to win. The hardworking farmer ought to be first to get a share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And I want to end that section there to say, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, because I am hopelessly unable to follow notes, I'm going to summarize all that... <laughs> to get to the part that is critical. So in other words, go read Ephesians for yourself. If you want these notes, email me or text me. I'll send them to you, and then you can see my thoughts on it as you read Ephesians, if you want, if you really want, okay? But the gospel, Ephesians starts at the very beginning with the gospel and its mission, saying, "...he made known to us the mystery of his will, which was to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth." This is the critical part of Ephesians that you have to understand. The context is made clear in the very first few verses when he says this. He made known to us the mystery of his will. Isn't that what we're all seeking? Isn't that what we all want to know is his will? Right? We are sanctified. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can know what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. And here he says, he made known to us the mystery of his will to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth. There's your answer, Lord, what is your will? Paul says, he's made clear his will. This was it, to bring everything together in the Messiah, in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. So this is the key point that the book of Ephesians, the letter he wrote, and the gospel he's proclaiming is encompassing both things on earth and in the heavens. It is a universal proclamation of the gospel. It's It's not just the application of it in one context. He's saying this is the will of God, the mystery that is revealed, as it applies to both the things in heaven and on earth. And he makes this phrase throughout it a couple times says things like, when you believed in the truth, the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Key point. Holy Spirit, given to you. He prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we can know what is the hope of His calling. So that we would know what is the hope of His calling. His calling was unto the mission. Okay? And so then there's a whole bunch of more cool parts like that, that talk about the gospel. He says, for this reason... This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. The Gentiles who didn't know it. And right before this part of Ephesians that I jumped to, he just went on a whole long passage to communicate how the mystery hidden through the ages was that God has brought all of humanity together as one in Christ, Jews and Gentiles. He tore down the dividing walls. He turned de- he teared down any reason for hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles because the Jews were very haughty and proud and thought they were the special ones and for they looked at the Gentiles as unclean and dirty and that they couldn't even eat with them or fellowship with them. And so Paul is saying Christ came and he tore down every possible reason you could have, Jewish people, for any hostility with the Gentiles. He tore that down. And he made them both one in Christ so that now together in the Messiah, they are co-heirs and one person with Christ. In other words, here's Paul saying, look what he did for humanity. He brought that together as one in Christ. So here's the earth part, right? In heaven and on earth. Mankind, all of it brought together. No dividing wall left can be one in Christ through this gospel. And he says, and to shed light for all about the administration of this mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church, the mission, to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. (laughs) That's just so awesome. This is according to his eternal purpose, right? What he just told us, his will to bring all things together in heaven and on earth as one in the Messiah. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in the Messiah. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Do you see just that one little passage, which is kind of like what Paul is saying? Look, he has brought all together in one. On earth, Jew and Gentile and everyone there, everyone in between, and in the heavens, every ruler, principality, and power. And he did it by bringing the Jews and Gentiles together on the earth to form his church, his body, which is the mission of Christ. And that church, through that thing, is how he then goes and brings the heavens together in one, in the Messiah. Because he's made known his manifold wisdom to them through us. That's the mission. Do you hear the high calling of God in that? You have been called to be an intricate part of the very entity in which God has eternally planned to reveal his manifold wisdom to the powers and rulers in the heavens. The universal gospel depends on us being everything God has called us to be and doing the works he's called us to, which is also in here, guys. I want to get to that. Um, and he says, you know, he prays that he'll give us the ability to comprehend the height and depth and length and width of God. So anyway, then he gets to the second part, which is the mission. He says, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. men." just take that and meditate on that for a month. What would it look like for you to walk worthy... Of the calling you have received. Meditate first on what is the calling you have received. And then what did Paul mean by you walking worthy of it? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. You see, here's his first major step into the mission, and what it ends up being is this, the calling, the function, and the identity of the church. That was supposed to be like a bomb moment, but I couldn't read everything that leads up to it, so I want you to just pretend like there was a mountain of evidence before that, okay? That the mission part is this, the mission ends up being Paul saying, guess what the mission is, guys? The mission is you being the church, Your identity is this. And he says, therefore, as the church, walk worthy of this high calling. What calling? For you to reveal the manifold wisdom of God to the heavens. Walk worthy of this calling and do it with humility and gentleness and realize that I've united you as one in the Messiah. So, and he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and we know what they're called to bring us, uh, to equip us to do this work, right? Right? Their burden is to equip the body to do this work and to bring the body to a place of maturity that is measured by the maturity of Christ. That's a high calling. So, listen to the type of transformation he's talking about because this this is the important part. He says to the church, therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth. So he expects this transformational change. Put away lying and speak the truth. Each one to his neighbor. That's the body part. Because we are members of one another. What? Take that for a month and meditate on that. We are members of one another. Then he says, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Listen to what he says here, guys. Let the thief no longer steal. So he's talking about a thief. A thief who stole, thus the name, right? This was part of who he was. He was identified as a thief. And he says, let that thief no longer steal. Instead, here's the transformation of what he expects from this missional church. He is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. You could preach on that for a bazillion months. The power of the gospel that Paul is talking about, this universal gospel that transforms a thief who was once in a place of stealing because of his lack and his need, who now has been transformed and commissioned to work hard with his hands so that he has more than enough to share with those in need so they won't have to be a thief. This is the transformational work of the gospel. It's not like Steph said, it's not Hollywood thunder. It's the practical transformations that truth transforms in a person's heart. And then they begin to pay it forward, right? That's the catchphrase for what the gospel has been preaching for 2,000 years. All right. And lastly, this is is where I wanted to summarize here. In chapter 5, verse 21, he ends by saying this. After doing all this, it's the whole two chapters of talking about how we should live since we've been united as one in the church. And since we've received this high calling and this high mission of the church. He says that when we come together, we should, you know, encourage each other, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making much music in your heart to the Lord Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And you're like, wow, there it is. It just tails off. The heart of God for his people is that we would submit one to another in the fear of Christ. And at this point, the word submit is one that we'd all happily agree on because it says submit one to another and do that in the fear of the Lord. And it does. That's the whole message of this thing. And then the very next sentence is, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. In everything. Husbands. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word of God. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He says, this mystery of two becoming one is profound. It's, it's a big mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. The profound mystery. This is, this is the game breaker. This is, this is it. And he says, to sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. What an interesting passage to put in the middle of a universal gospel proclamation and the administrative teachings of the church's mission. He's talking about how thieves should no longer steal and become providers. He's talking about how adulterers should become faithful people. He's talking about how those who used to walk according to the flesh should be led by the Spirit. He's talking about people should be filled with the Spirit and then together as one body singing spiritual songs and hymns and psalms one to another. He's talking about rejoicing in the Lord and submitting one to another in the fear of the Lord and then suddenly he dumbs it down to wives submit to your husbands, husbands treat your wives nice. That is not what's happening but that is what we do. That is what we do with this climactic passage at the end of the the masterwork of Ephesians. And then we argue over the stupidest things of how that's supposed to look. You understand? Paul never had in mind massively broken people trying to inflict these things on each other. This was to be the height. I want you to get this, guys. This was to be the height of the church Revealing the manifold wisdom of God to the heavens. How the husband and the wife revealed that. The calling was not for husbands to love their wives because wives need to be loved. The calling was not for wives to submit to their husbands because husbands need to be respected. Please do not dumb it down to that insignificant fact. The point was this, that you were called into this profound mystery to reveal the the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, in such a supernatural way that the world would look and see the manifold wisdom of God in that display. That the powers of the, in the heavens, the rulers of the darkness and everywhere that ever challenged God or ever didn't understand would look at the marriage relationship and the full revelation of it and say, look at the manifold wisdom of God that is being revealed through this thing. And not through you as an individual because that's not the point of Ephesians. The whole point was that he was building things up to say he's brought everything together as one in the Messiah. As one body, the church, of which you are a part, of which your marriage is a part, of which your future marriage is just a part. It's one brick in the building of the temple of the Lord that is to display the manifold wisdom of God to all things. And we argue and wrestle and dispute over how I am to lay my life down to to serve my wife and over how and when I should submit to my husband. The point of this passage was to say this. Guys, the witness of Christ and his gospel, the very mission of Christ is resting on the shoulders of the church. And the centerpiece of that revelation to the lost is the love of Christ for his church and the response of that love from Christ, from his church. That the lost would look and they would see and know that we are his because of our love one for another. But the bigger revelation is this. Look at how they respond to the one who has loved him. Look at, how is that, so how, look at how that is so masterfully displayed in these Christian marriages that seem so different from the marriages of this world. Look at it. It's on display. It's indisputable. Look how this husband lays his wife down as Christ does for the church and loves her and leads her with strength and humility. And then look at how that wife submits to him so willingly even in things where she clearly disagrees and doesn't want to do but there's, there's such a willingness to submit to his leadership in that. It's almost as if she's submitting to the Lord himself. That's a beautiful thing. How is that even possible in this day and age? There's something else going on. There's some sort of divine wisdom in that exchange. There's some sort of eternal love at the root of that supporting it. It's, it's, it's what they're seeing is the gospel on display. And this is the entire message of Ephesians. It starts with a proclamation of this universal gospel and saying, guys, I'm, this is Paul talking to his churches and saying, The universal revelation of the will of the Father is at stake. So let me tell you about his will. It is to reveal himself to the heavens and the earth so that all things according to his eternal will that's been a mystery hidden till now so that all things could be brought together into the Messiah who will save everyone, redeem everyone, restore all things. This is the glory of God. He is going to reveal it to all the things that need that by bringing everyone together and forming his church of which he's the head. And he's going to lead this head like a faithful, loving husband. And this church is going to respond to such a faithful, loving leader by joyfully, willingly surrendering their entire life to follow him at all costs as the primary focus. And the world is going to see this. And that's going to be put on display. And so after that, he sums it up by saying, children, do the same thing. You have a key part in this. Honor and obey your children in the Lord, for this is right. And when the world sees obedient children, they will marvel. And then he says to masters and slaves, and this is the the part that I already told you the climax of Ephesians. But this is the part that kind of reinforces everyone who wants that wiggle room to say, well, submission meant like this, you submit one to another, and and then, you know, we've we've taken it out of context where a wife has to submit to her husband as unto the Lord. But what that really means is that they should work as perfect egalitarian partners and always agree on everything. It's like, well, you forgot chapter, you forgot the end of chapter five and six. Where he then tells slaves to submit to their masters. And he says, Do not serve your masters only when they are looking as man pleasers, but do it at all times as if unto the Lord, so that the gospel would be seen in purity and power. Do you think the word submit there means masters and slaves, egalitarian working together until they come to an agreement? Please stop it. Stop it. Let the word speak and let the beauty of it be seen. Okay? If you think anyone gets away with not having to submit to somebody, you're sadly mistaken. Everyone submits to someone in their life. Everyone. It is the calling of of following Christ to submit and to follow And at the end of Ephesians, he wraps it up with what most of us probably know most popularly about Ephesians, this last spiel about the armor of God. But the whole point of it was this, was that the armor was only necessary in order to bring the gospel to the nations. And he ends it by saying, pray for me so that I can speak boldly as I ought to speak. I'm in chains right now, but the gospel's not in chains. And he said, the Lord has brought me to this place where I am in chains, where I have to forcefully submit to rulers and, and evil, wicked men. But God has put me in these chains in order that I can present the gospel to this audience. Do You see how Paul said, in all of this, I see even in my chains in captivity, the working of the mission of God that he has put me in. And I am submitting to these chains knowing that through this, the glory of God is going to be seen. So the challenge here for you guys is this. At some point, we have to do a a rubber meets the road, it's all or nothing type moment before God. And God is gracious with us. He is long-suffering, patient and gracious, and I am as much... Is anyone else eternally grateful for that long suffering that he has demonstrated and consistently demonstrates in my life? I am not preaching up here as a perfect person, but hopefully as someone like Paul who sees the prize and is striving for that ultimate call in which I've been called. And in the same way, saying, guys and gals, we need to stand before the Father and say, God, please, Expose the places that I am preserving in my life. Expose the things I'm holding on to that are are being detrimental to my full-on giving of myself to the mission, to the gospel, to the purpose. And remember, I defined mission here by both the world's definition and the Scripture's definition. Begin to define for yourself what civilian affairs look like in your life begin to find what the goals and the missions that you're pursuing in your life that aren't going to last are and then one by one if you have to do the hard work of, of praying and seeking and saying do I have to let go of this if I let go of this can I give myself more to the mission of God on the earth as displayed here right that's the point now you guys anyone here is more than more than familiar with my understanding of the mission and the church and how God has set up the churches and what that looks like to be a part of the church go back and listen to previous messages if you're not sure but I'm saying God has called us to be together as one as a church on mission accomplishing these things okay that's just what it is And our life is a life of service to the Lord and submission to the Lord and submission to the people that the Lord has put in places of leadership in our lives because of their surrender and following the Lord and their gifts and their strengths and their experience and their wisdom and their abilities and their gifts. And for all these reasons, God assigns leaders across the globe. Every one of them. The Bible tells us that he even uses wicked, evil, secular authorities as his tools and vessels to bring his will about So at this point, the challenge, guys, for for me every day and for us is this. At what point do we just say, I'm all in? At what point do we say, I'm tired of kicking against the goads? I'm tired of rejecting the faithful wounds of friends. I'm tired of ignoring the prods of people that have been trying to wake me up so I don't fall into the sleep of death. I'm tired of resisting God and, and being resisted by him on so many fronts in my life. It just doesn't seem like the word of God is doing what it's supposed to do. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of feeling resisting. I'm tired of feeling like I'm not walking in the grace of God. At some point, we have to come to that point and take this seriously and say, God, help me give everything to the mission. Help me spend what little life I have on this earth for the purpose of eternal rewards, for the purpose of bringing souls into the kingdom, of of laying my life down so that the manifold wisdom of God would be seen through my life as well. And there's an easy gauge and benchmark you can do this. Ask the people closest to your life and then ask the people who aren't so close to your life but are in your life and know you some. Say, when you think of me, what do you think about if I were to die today, what would you say at my funeral about me? What are like the strengths and, and things that you you feel about me, you say about me? And then if you're super bold and super like not easily offended, ask them what they think your weaknesses are and where you're weak. And then say, hmm, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And take them to God and say, God, if these are really here, most of the times you'll identify them and you'll know. But if they're really there, then say, God, help me with this. Then... Get into a group, a life group or a holiness club or whatever group you want to get a part of and say, guys, I need to grow in this. I'm struggling in this. Hold me accountable. Now, that all sounds good and I get it that it sounds good and it's difficult. But that's the point, guys. It's never not going to be difficult. It's never not going to be difficult. Your life will never not be difficult. Oh, but my life is extra difficult. I know. I've—I've, I've, Believe me, I've preached that narrative to myself many times. Soon it'll be easier, and sooner I'll be able to, I'll be able to do these things that I know God's putting my heart. And there is no sooner coming, guys. It's now. Today is the day of salvation if you have eyes to see it and ears to hear it. You understand? That's it. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised an easier life. Matter of fact, the the more and more you walk with Christ, your life is going to get more difficult and more busy and if you can't find the ability to obey Christ in the midst of that it's never going to happen but here's the glory of the gospel you have as I read at the beginning of Ephesians you have been given the Holy Spirit as a seal and down payment of the gospel of your salvation and this Holy Spirit this is the mind blower is the fullness of God dwelling within you the fullness of God dwelling in you, within you. Because of this Holy Spirit, you can identify your limits and then defy them. Because you're not limited by human limitations. You can go beyond them. You can find grace where your, where your strength ends. And if you tap into it, you will see the glory of God in your life. It's true. But it won't look like it won't look like a movie's climactic moment. It'll look like hardship. It'll look like struggle and suffering for others. And it'll look like this deep and abiding joy that sits in your heart even as you struggle through difficult times because there's a fellowship you found among the body of Christ of other like-minded, sold-out people. And you all sitting there and you're encouraging each other with your shared stories of struggle and hardship, but how God is giving you the grace and the encouragement through each other to make it through. That's a supernatural life and that's what it looks like on this earth. Do you understand? That's what it looks like. If you're producing that fruit, if you're seeing that, awesome. If you're not, today just might be the day for you to make that decision, to step up and say, I want a life fully consecrated to the Lord, wholly sold out to the will of God in his mission. I want to know what is the height and depth and length and width of this love of God that I can only find together with all the saints as we are on this mission together. If that's you, take one minute right now and decide. You may have other times to make this decision in your life. I don't know, but you might not also. I don't know. The point is, here's another one of those moments. Here's another one of those proddings before you fall asleep, trying to wake you up and saying, if you feel like that is you, in all humility and grace, take a minute and then decide, and then just come up front. Not because there's anyone watching, and there may not be anyone who prays for you, but this is... the the prophetic act of your will to do what you've been wrestling in your soul to do for so long. Do you understand? Your soul is not isolated. It is part of your spirit and your body. And sometimes you need your body to kick in where your soul won't. Do you understand? And you make your body get up and come do something as an act before the Lord saying, God, here's my act of faith because I want this. And because I need this, I am not content to live a half-life for Christ. I am not content to stand before God and see the majority of my life burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. I'm not content. Take one minute. We're going to begin the worship up here. And in that one minute, you decide. There's not going to be another call. Use your phone, 60 seconds, whatever, who cares? Then you come up and you just go after God. And we're going to go after God. If people pray for you, awesome. If people don't pray for you, great. Then you get the Holy Spirit praying for you. He's better than us. Let's do it. Let's worship the one who's worthy. Let's believe that the Holy Spirit's going to do something amazing in your heart right now.